welcome to AI with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we'll be hearing from BrainChip about their spiking neural network accelerator, how it can support transformers, and a new type of neural network they've invented, which combines spatial and temporal convolutions to efficiently process sequential spatiotemporal data. That interview with BrainChip CMO, Nundan Nayampali, is later in this episode. But first, here's a little roundup of some people I've been talking to lately. Raja Kaduri, Intel's former GPU chief architect, called me up to tell me about his new company, Mihira, and what it's going to do. Mihira will be a data center operator and content creation company that will offer several layers of service. There'll be a heterogeneous data center hardware architecture made up of CPUs for rendering, gaming GPUs, and various AI accelerators. Part of the secret source will be in the software orchestration layer, which handles distributing the workloads across heterogeneous hardware. Raja has licensed some software from Intel's project Endgame to build on. Endgame is a project that Intel recently abandoned, which was going to be a unified gaming services layer for the cloud. Mihira will also build a content creation studio in India to make digital content like movies and digital twins. Workloads from the content creation studio will be used to test Mihira's hardware and software as it develops. Raja told me he hasn't completely ruled out working on new silicon IP going forward. My article has more details on Mihira and Raja's plans. I'll put a link to my exclusive interview on the podcast page at eetimes.com. AI chip startup Lemurian Labs has come up with an interesting idea, using logarithmic number formats, more commonly used in DSP maths for AI acceleration. Logarithmic formats have been used for ages in DSPs, where the algorithms have tons of multiplication operations, which is easy to do in hardware with the logarithmic format. Addition, not so much. But for AI, we obviously need multiplication and addition for matrix multiplication. So Lemurians come up with a hardware solution for logarithmic addition. And the number formats it's invented are a bit special. They use multiple bases and multiple exponents, but they have much better coverage in the range around zero um, than FP8 does, which is where we need it for AI. So hopefully they can get away with lower precision for the same accuracy. The company's building a data center chip designed for its number formats, and they hope to tape out in Q324. Initial simulation results show it can outperform the H100. Head on over to the podcast page at eetimes.com for a link to the article where there's loads more detail on the number format and their plans for silicon. Just lately, there's been a small flurry of companies stepping up saying that while their accelerator was designed for something completely different, of course, they can also have a good go at LLMs, specifically Llama 2, which is becoming the de facto standard LLM benchmark. Taiwanese data center chip company NewChips had a nice demo of Llama 2 on its N3000 chip, which is designed for recommendation acceleration at the AI Hardware Summit. Turns out recommendation has some things in common with LLM workloads. Um, that is, they're both sensitive to memory throughput. NewChips has a dedicated engine to accelerate recommendation embeddings, uh, which can also help traffic optimization and caching for LLMs. And the engine also has a direct link to multiple LPDDR5 modules. The company also uses its flexible FP8 number format to gain an advantage. Another company with Llama on its mind is Amberella, who recently demonstrated Llama 2 on the most powerful ship in its portfolio, the CV3AD, which is more commonly used for autonomous driving. I was able to get a sneak preview of this demo up and running recently at Amberella's office. The company thinks it can probably approach A100 performance in a 50-watt device. 
While there are applications in vehicles for LLMs and transformers, the company hasn't ruled out making a data center version of its proprietary AI accelerator. You can read more on both those demos at eetimes.com. I'll put some links on the podcast page. One of the earliest neuromorphic chip companies, BrainChip, has been around for a little while, and the company has chips and IP based on spiking neural networks already on the market. The latest generation of their IP has features for accelerating transformers like VIT, and the company has also been working on a new neural network architecture it calls Temporal Event-Based Neural Networks, or TENS. Please enjoy my conversation with BrainChip's Nandan Nayampali. Great, Nandan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for having us on. Uh, so maybe you could just start by telling us a bit about uh, BrainChip and BrainChip's technology. I've been working with you or with BrainChip for a while. I know you have this IP called Akida. Maybe you could start to tell us a little bit about uh, how this works. It's a kind of neuromorphic brain-inspired design. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, sure. Uh, so just for myself, I've been at BrainChip uh, for about a year. But BrainChip is a company that's been around for a while. It was originally founded by uh, Peter Van der Maid, a serial entrepreneur out of uh, Australia, uh, who wanted to explore uh, brain function and how it could be applied in terms of technology. And then that uh, uh, he combined, actually collaborated with uh, Anil Munker, who has a long history in semiconductor design uh, about 10 years ago to form what you see of BrainChip today. Right. And what they did was they actually explored a lot of neural models. They looked at various ways to go with that. They actually built neurons, trying to see the function, and realized quickly that uh, brain function is, if you try to do it as the brain does, is pretty difficult or heavily compute intensive. So you need to take uh, essence of brain function and try to make it practical. Right. So in, in the industry, you've seen things. Neuromorphic is a very cool term, which means inspired by the brain or the neurons. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. And what you, you see are leaky neuron models. You see all kinds of interesting functions. Right. And uh, what Brainchip finally did was picked the key essences of it. There is analog-ish computation that always in the, happens in the brain. But then it fires and it sends events across. That's the communication. So what BrainChip does is distills it into the essence of what neuromorphic computing is, which is simplified um, computation and event-based transmission. Right. So we kind of call it event-based neural nets. Um, it's effectively uh, a simplified view of what uh, the brain function does, but gets the benefits of brain function, which is a, I mean, as you know, the brain is probably the most efficient um, compute engine known, right? Uh, trillions of neurons operating, and they say, you can estimate that it's, that takes them less than 20 watts for what would be a supercomputer. Um, if you can take those things and build it into technology, that's what BrainChip is trying to do. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, very powerful inspiration from the brain. And I know there are lots of others that are, are taking inspiration from the brain, but I'm glad you said that neuromorphic means a lot of different things to different people, because I definitely see that as well. If you were to actually think about what we do, uh, you would distill it and say, this is kind of an integrate and fire type neuron, right? Uh, which is kind of the basic essence of neuromorphic. 
I know you said the computation is simplified compared to what we find in the brain. Can you give us a... a so I know that when you have neurons in the brain, it's all based on timing, right? It's about the timing mm -hmm. of these spikes as they arrive in the, in the next neuron or the nearest neighbor neuron. Um, tell us about how you've simplified that uh, for brain chips hardware. So, uh, so the, the key concepts of what makes neuromorphic computing or event-based computing efficient is unlike uh, traditional deep learning architectures, which work on a layer by layer, um, uh, approach and need activation maps and wake maps to be stabilized, right? Um, Event-based works on smaller granules and smaller computation and only the events within those get forwarded. So yes, there's a concept of timing that is there. However, if you're taking today's model, so if you take a spiking neural net model, for example, right, you would have that timing built in but spiking neural net models already have that notion that goes across. But if you take today's convolutional models, for example, you don't have to have that timing because once you compile them, you have a notion of how things are going to propagate. And then the events happen based on inputs to those models. Right. So in, in a lot of ways, you're, um, it's different from the traditional approach of how the brain works unless you're taking purely spiking neural nets, in which case the models understand what they need to do. If it's today's models, then you're converting those, which BrainChip does as well through its software stack, into how are those events going to be generated? How are they going to be propagated? And hence, time is kind of essentially built in. Okay, so simplifying in this way means uh, maybe we don't need the asynchronous, complicated asynchronous designs that we see with other neuromorphic uh, chips like Intel Low EE, right? Correct. I think I, I could I could sense the the quietness there because yes, <laughs> because traditionally uh, you're absolutely right. Brain does work on an asynchronous level, right? Which is fire when needed. Yeah. Pass that forward, right? And whereas um, brain chip has taken a much more simplified single clock design, so it's not it's it uses clock gating rather than wake up and fire from an execution standpoint, even though the communication between the, the various neural processing engines and nodes is um, wake up and fire in, in effect, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So yes, it does not need asynchronous approaches that would be natural in a, a true bio neuromorphic approach or companies like Intel, that have actually taken that to heart and tried to build it from that standpoint. I mean, they're they're great, but they're also from today's technology very compute intensive um, and non-intuitive. Weirdly, yeah. non-intuitive <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for a technologist. Okay, uh, I think the biggest benefit here is the power consumption that we're talking about. I and mean, this is across all of neuromorphic, but for brain chip, brain chip specifically, we're talking about kind of microwatts to, to milliwatts for inference, right? Yes, I think there's there's two things that we need to consider, right? So, for example, you've seen um, IBM talk about the new variation of true north to north pole. You can create computation at various levels. Yes, data center could benefit from neuromorphic techniques because it can reduce uh, power consumption, uh, reduce effective computation needed for the same types of models, etc. But 
what Brainchip did at the beginning itself is to say, hey, we can apply these. If I take it to a larger extent, it's going to be much more complex. We're going to focus on the edge and try to bring uh, AI compute to where um, you wouldn't expect it. Right? And obviously, the motivations are very clear. Uh, as AI gets more proliferated, you can't have a um, uh, intelligence in the cloud and a dumb device that's just a, a delivery vehicle or a sensor vehicle. You need a distributed intelligence where you can improve the uh, experience of the user. Um, you can improve the privacy and security concerns of the user because literally personal data, sensor data is sensitive data, critical data. You don't want that going back and forth, ideally. Uh, so that's there. Plus, the, as you can see, the models get more and more complex. And especially if you go to cloud, you need the context or without context, it becomes much more uh, brute force and general purpose. The compute starts getting much heavier, right? And so the idea of actually having distributed um, intelligence is fundamental to why Brainchip's doing what it's doing. And so our focus has been at the edge. And we come to now your question about the power. Sorry for that long interlude. <laughs> it's okay. But it, it, I wasn't giving the motivations, right? And so our focus is on um, microwatts and milliwatts of power. So to give you a, a sense, if you're doing things that are kind of keyword related, um, phrasing related, in fact, simple phrasing functions, even in 28 nanometer type technologies, you would be in microjoules per inference or sub microjoules even at times. Um, moving up in our big conf uh, configurations, you would be talking tens, maybe hundreds of milliwatts for very higher high-end vision or video type applications. But all you see here is things that are very portable, right? They, they lend themselves to uh, portable applications. They lend themselves to fanless applications and hence when you think about it, you could think about medical devices that are wearable or even embeddable at times, right? You can think about audio or other sensory devices that are much, don't have any heat problems, don't have any form factor problems. And then, of course, uh, you can start seeing what today gets called the network edge type applications, which are still, for all practical purposes, um, small servers going to more portable um, form factors and hence proliferating wider. Yeah, I see. Um, so it seems like you apply everywhere across the edge from like sensor edge to kind of small server, I guess. Um, I know there is the latest generation of Akita is the second gen, right? Um, maybe yes. we could talk a little more about that and uh, what are the differences from the first gen is particularly what I'm interested in. Great. So uh, Akita kind of launched in 2020-ish, the first generation. Uh, we demonstrated our technology to prove not only that it works, but how good it can be, right? And you've probably seen um, a lot of the demos uh, in your past few years. Uh, I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, they show you, one, how it's sensor, I mean, sensor independent, 
right? Yeah. So it can be used in various types of applications. So the hardware software stack, which is fundamental to any uh, <laughs> uh, uh, productizable AI yeah. is working and actually delivering on promise of actually taking milliwatts per inference or microwatts per inference, right? So that has been proven. Uh, our first generation was the proving out of this digital technology um, had four to one bit support, which is um, expected for these small form factors. Um, in the second generation, we went a little bit further. There are a few things that we came, that came back from the market as well, which is, hey, great, you can do these traditional feed-forward networks well. If you start doing more complex models, um, one of the big advantages Akita has in the first and the second gen is that it can um, operate independently for most part, right? So it has the, the functions and the capabilities to manage itself and not use the host CPU much, which is really a benefit for edge devices, which are usually yeah. constrained on system performance, on memory, et cetera. Yeah. So the at memory compute that allows, and that comes from the neuromorphic or event-based aspect, which is, hey, we don't need more compute because we don't have to store all those intermediate layers. We compute, we get an event, we pass it on. We don't need all of that storage. Okay. Two, it's managed, uh, separately from the host CPU. So there's very little pressure on the system and the CPU compute needed for it, which is traditionally what host CPUs do. That's a big benefit, right? But then we kind of started saying, hey, we need to do more complex models and we want to avoid CPU intervention there as well. We need to start getting smarter about um, recurrent layers, uh, which are, again, can be intensive we are seeing that these edge models are getting more complex, which means training them, constantly training them is also expensive. So what can we do to move that forward? Um, also, in order for you to do a lot of edge AI at source on device, you need to be able to handle a lot more streaming data, whether yep. it's 1D like vital signs or audio or um, multi-dimensional 3D like vision or video, right? And so the second generation takes multiple steps. One, and you're going to ask me this, so I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll jump to it anyway. We've gone towards an 8-bit, a very efficient way to do 8-bit compute. It's not like doubling everything. We're being pretty smart about how we do that. And the reason for that is um, one, it's not necessary necessarily for us to do 8-bit. We can actually encode the payloads in 4-bit, 2-bit, 1-bit just fine. 8-bit gives us a bit more capacity because uh, when it comes to neuromorphic or event-based, we can actually simplify our life by not sending every event, but encoding a firing rate. So instead of sending 20 events, we could encode it into this 8-bit value and say, this is firing at this rate. So one event can encode that payload. So that gives us more efficiency there, right? Okay. Um, but a lot of the models today, weights activations are 8-bit. The market is comfortable with 8-bit. So this gives us the flexibility to support um, a lot more models with a lot less chagrin yep. from our customers. 
right? The second thing we add is uh, long-range skip connections. Okay. So when you do uh, larger complex models, skip connections help you tide over some of this. Deep deep learning acceleration, actually, um, uh, some of these are done in the host CPU managing it. Uh, or you're adding a lot more compute to do that. We're kind of building it into our mesh itself, right? So okay. you can start doing more advanced um, uh, complex models with the skip connections. But the two big new things that we've added, right, are um, firstly, I'll say vision transformers is not new, but an efficient uh, encoding that can be put in small footprints is new. Okay, yeah. Right. Um, and the, the other one that has been garnering us a lot of attention is the temporal event-based neural nets. Yeah. And the idea for temporal event-based neural nets is the ability to recurrent layers more efficiently and, and uh, time series data or sequential data uh, analysis or uh, analytics much more capably. And so that really changes the way um, Akita can support much wider ranges of applications from, you know, higher-end video object detection in real time on a portable device to uh, potentially, you know, healthcare monitoring on patient um, which is managed as secure and, and personalized. So the, the thing we haven't talked yet, which is common across both generations, is our ability to learn on device. Now, this is not retraining because that's a pretty complex process and expensive process. But here we can take um, the learning that has been done or uh, features extracted from training and we can extend it on device with a a more flexible final layer. So if you know that a a model can recognize faces with one or um, one shot or multi-shot learning, we can now say, hey, this is Sally's face or this is Nolan's face. You don't want 2000 new faces to train, but for most of these devices, it's really the owner and uh, uh, maybe the family. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And similarly from healthcare, it is, fundamentally interesting because even though today's healthcare deals with statistics and if you are on the edge of that statistic are you normal are you not what does that mean for me right my bp is x my blood pressure is x it could fall in the formal range and i get treated like everybody in that range but actually for me it may mean something different and i have personal experience um, uh, with that especially my wife's health that was mis understood because she was on the edge of a range that was considered normal and hence treatment took a lot longer to come because they didn't feel she was out of bounds yeah when when if it was personalized they would have known that what was happening to her was out of bounds and we would have moved to more of a preventative rather than a you know post facto and hence much more painful uh, treatment yeah, goodness. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things here I want to dive into. I think first I want to ask you about the learning on device. Is this a 
property of the being in the spiking domain, like being in the event domain, or, or where does this ability come from? Yes, it, it does come from uh, the event domain. Okay. Right? And um, and I think the the term is STDP. You can look it up. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's not rocket science. No pun intended. Okay. So it, it has been done before. I think what we've designed, you do need to architect for it right? mm -hmm. to make it efficient. And that's what Akita has done. Okay. To be clear, though, STDP is not like how you would fine-tune or train a, a normal deep learning network. It's a completely different kind of learning paradigm, right? It is a different learning paradigm. And uh, we do naturally invest a lot of our patent work on that. So we do have um, some of the original work that has been done that we believe is valuable. And this has been something that originally was a kind of a what I call a vitamin, which is nice to have. <laughs> okay. But in some cases like this, especially, it starts becoming an aspirin that solves headaches. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, the other couple of things I wanted to dive into a little more are the, uh, the mm -hmm. hardware support for VIT. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me anything about how that looks in the hardware? Like most things, um, we're taking the edge approach, which means minimalist at uh, at best, right? And so we, what we see is uh, we've taken not just vision transformer, but but let's be honest, tiny vision transformers, right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's what you yeah. need to make to fit. Uh, we also recognize that you know decoders are very complex because decoding gets done differently in different places. So even if you built one, either you build something that is in hardware capable of doing everything, yeah. <laughs> right? Whereas encoding is a, a bit more well understood, yeah. right? And, and, and more uh, scalable. So we've tried to get the essence of what encoding uh, we need to kind of go do. And we've demonstrated that in uh, or built it into our uh, VIT node. So the VIT node is not in the event domain, right? Mm -hmm. But it will sit on the mesh okay. right, that we have. And what that gives us the flexibility to do, in fact, what we've seen is, you know, things like vision itself, you know, convolutional CNNs do well at some aspects of it. Transformers do well at some aspects of it, right? And, you know, you want to go more accurate, you go one way. You want to go faster, you go another way. But you can also start then looking at a picture as a paragraph or yeah. a set of words and sentences, et cetera. And that's what the this kind of hybrid mesh effectively helps us do. So you can actually build out very uh, optimized, unique solutions with the benefits of the vision transformer that it gives you on some of the accuracy aspects of it and the flexibility of, in this case, I would call it event-based neural threads rather than just uh, convolutional neural nets and um, get similar accuracy, but much more efficiently, right? So the big step for us has been the movement of production grade accuracy, whatever that means mm -hmm. at the edge, which has been the chance. We, this is, you don't want to be a toy. Yep. This needs to be real, right? And so we're taking the steps towards that. Sure, sure. Can you see a day where we're going to get LLMs, language models, uh, on this kind of uh, into this kind of power envelope? Because that would be like the holy grail, right? 
it is right now, well today yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, i heard somebody say that oh llms pretty much we're done after that but that sounds like uh, tj watson's claim that five supercomputers was the total market in 1960 yeah. right <laughs> yeah. so uh, i may be wrong but i do think that uh, especially the economics of LLMs and foundational models will drive both efficiency on the cloud and uh, more activity at the edge, right? So if you just consider the fact that uh, the cost of search with um, <laughs> Gen AI kind of has gone up almost 10x, it's just not yeah. sustainable. Yeah. And naturally, there's a lot of money going into this. You can see what uh, companies like Qualcomm and Meta are doing with Llama. And, and in fact, I was told that even in the smartphone space, there are over a thousand Gen AI apps, whatever that means, right? Wow. Okay. But um, so I think there are, uh, you also, uh, you have probably been to Edge Impulses Imagine. Yeah, and, and and they were also working closely towards how can we actually do foundational models, and and there are various ways this is being attacked, right? Which is, hey, can we use it to optimize the uh, data sets that are needed to generate models, which can help with the shrinking and the the compactness, and then there are smarter things you could do in the same way to build hardware as well as models that support that, right? So, and you can see many initiatives. So my quick answer to their question is, yes, it will. Now the question is how and what do you do about it? Uh, there, for example, there's a lot of research now that come out of, that has become a, um, an open source initiative, Spike GPT. Yes. Um, which naturally fits into how do you actually make lightweight LLMs, yep. right? So would that be L cube M then? Uh, <laughs> like, maybe I should large, trademark that. Models, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but really it's about how do you reduce the um, transformer aspects of it to some extent? How do you uh, start doing um, phraseology that is easier rather than brute force or general purpose in every context. So I think some of the same context that you bring in to edge AI will apply to edge LLM. Yeah. Right. It's not trying to solve everything for everybody, but for its scope. Yeah. It does what it's supposed to do. And I will give you an analogy that may be weird, but I have to say it anyway. Um, what do you think the biggest um, innovation was when the first iPhone came out? Uh, the keyboard on the touchscreen. Oh, sure. So I shouldn't yeah. have made it such an open-ended question. Okay. <laughs> uh, I apologize. But but uh, you're right. You know, the, the touchscreen, capacitive screens, et cetera, came in. But I thought the biggest um, innovation was the notion of the app, which packaged the internet. Yes. Okay. Right. Instead of... You were probably used to WAP at that point, which was a, let me use a desktop model of surfing the web with web pages that were not designed for it. And you didn't have the compute or the bandwidth to do that, right? I remember apps, that, yes, it was painful. Exactly. The app was the killer app. The app yeah. itself was the killer app because it packaged everything to say, okay, 
I'm going to use it like this. I need to see three things. I need to be quick. I needed to do it for me and not worry about it. Yes. So instead of one browser, you had a thousand apps, but at least you knew what we were trying to get to and you could go do that. Right. And I, I think it's the same analogy that works for Edge AI and LLMs as well, because these things will be, is it for transcription? Is it for speech? Is it for uh, scene generation? All of these things, if you um, have focus on it, it solves multiple problems. And that's actually the whole notion about distributed AI. A slightly longer route, (laughs) but hopefully that answers your question. It's a question of when and how, not if. Exactly. I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's definitely a question of when. Um, Coming back to today, though, um, I want to pick up another thing you mentioned, which is the tens, uh, the concept Mm -hmm. of tens, um, which is something I think uh, we're not hearing anywhere else. Tens sound Mm -hmm. really cool. It sounds like you can Mm -hmm. get away with uh, much smaller models to do the same job as other neural networks. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how that works and and how you you get away with it, basically. Yeah, I think this is... uh, uh, very interesting, right? So I think um, this comes from the idea of um, basically more structured uh, ways to do models, right? And there's been a lot of research. There's a lot of industry research on it. We have taken a, a slightly different approach, right? Uh, so think about the notion of temporal, right? So we have event-based neural nets already, right? Now you take the the time element into it, right? And so that basically shows you how how is attention built in, how is state built in, in a in a very different way. Okay. Right? Uh, and so the recurrent aspects of the models are built in in a non traditional way. Okay. Right? So can you do what LSTMs and GRUs do, but much more efficiently? And you actually make the training aspects of LSTMs and GRUs, which are a pain to train. I should trademark that as well. Um, (laughs) uh, Because CNNs tend to be easier to train, right? Uh, Feed forward networks, at least. Yeah. And and the the more recurrent ones are more painful to train. TENS kind of says you can train it like a CNN, right? But you can use it in recurrent mode. Cool. Okay. Right. And so what what that does is uh, um, multiple things. We can now do it on multi-dimensional time series data, which is, hey, I could do audio, I could do denoising based on what it is, I could do on different types of uh, sensor signs like vital signs, heart rates, etc. But I could also do video and vision because now I can use the spatial aspects as a 2D and the time aspect on the third dimension. Okay, so the, the temporal event-based neural net model approach is applicable about any, across any hardware. Right? Okay. So it, it, it will help, but what we've done is saying, if you run it on our hardware, we have tuned it to be able to do those convolutions um, much, much more efficiently, where you'll get orders of magnitude benefit in terms of power and performance. 
Uh, so one of the things I uh, picked up on when I was reading up on TENS was that uh, it seems like you can accept signals without this initial DSP mm -hmm. stage or without this initial filtering. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you can do that. That's fair, right? So I think the, the big uh, reason, again, is the temporal aspect being part of the model itself and understanding the time aspect, right? Traditionally, what what uh, you've done, especially in things like audio or denizing, is there's a front end that separate brings in the time element to some extent, right? So the MFCC phase, that what's called yeah. the MEL frequency capsule coefficients, or a short-term Fourier trans STFT type thing. Yeah. Um, you you do that to to kind of filter it and create a signal that is more well understood that the network can uh, traditionally a DSCNN can then work on. Because we're taking the time element as a part of it, you can actually get a lot more separation of signal and noise from it. And okay. you don't need to do that front end filtering. Hmm. Okay, that's, and, that's interesting, mean, yeah. Yeah, so the details of it, probably, we should probably do a webinar or something like that <laughs> okay. forward, but because yeah. um, I will tell you beyond a couple of layers of here, my depth also for the way to convince you or explain to you may take some time, but even for myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but those, that's the, and some of it is still kind of a secret sauce, if you will. So okay. not all of it is uh, published, but Right now, we've been demonstrating this consistently. Hey, you don't need an MFCC. You can take the signal right in, mm -hmm. and you get this out with better accuracy than an MFCC plus DSCNN, for example. Right, cool. And we've seen the same thing on the front ends of some of the um, vital signs things. Right, There's a different type of filtering for each, yeah. and we don't need to do that, and we can still distill signal correctly. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very cool. It sounds like a bit of a cheat, but like the best innovations. It does sound like a bit of a cheat, but no, it's very cool. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, take that as a compliment. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, on behalf compliment. of all the the <laughs> researchers at Brainship. Um, I think the one of the last Brainship demos that I saw um, was with a DVS sensor with an event-based camera. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about event-based and the spiking domain here as well. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I think you had it hooked up with a, a Prophecy um, DVS camera. Um, tell us about the synergy there. They're kind of both event-based, both neuromorphic. Um, how well do they work together? So I think uh, this is certainly, I wouldn't call it the holy grail, but the natural evolution, evolutionary path, which would be, hey, if you can connect event-based sensors to event-based um, processing, then it is the way to go forward because it simplifies a lot, right? Uh, and we are working with the partners like Prophecy who are great partners to kind of go through that. The challenge in the short term is everybody has to design to also be able to support frame-based because even though they generate event-based, right? Uh, a lot of the back end of it tends to be more frame-based. So uh, you have you have some overheads as you have to build that into your products mm -hmm. in the short to medium term. Mm -hmm. um, but even with that, we see a lot of benefit there. And in fact, we demonstrated, as you said, you, you saw some of the demos, but in terms of the research as well, uh, what happens is if you start doing that, you, you can not just build models, but let those models learn alongside as they see, you can, 
do more with less data in the beginning. Yeah. And then build it out. Yeah. Which I guess is the essence of neuromorphic, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It does sound pretty cool to have a human retina inspired camera and then a human brain inspired processor would be super cool. Um, with the, we're talking about edge, um, mm-hmm. edge ML, mm-hmm. tiny ML kind of applications mm-hmm. here for these. Um, with the the kind of rise of the tiny ML movement, which has been coming mm-hmm. up over the last three or four years, um, mm-hmm. how do you see competition from like ML on just regular run-of-the-mill microcontrollers? They're cheap, they're ubiquitous, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know deep learning models are getting so efficient now. You know you can yep. do a lot more with a microcontroller now than you could three or four years ago. You know how do neuro how do neuromorphic chips like yours fit in uh, alongside you know regular microcontrollers? So I think that's a, a very fair question, right? So in terms of finally, uh, one of the the realities is AI does not mean specialized hardware. It may need specialized hardware at scale, yep. but AI can be done on a CPU, on a GPU, on neural processors, et cetera. So the fact that the tiny ML movement is drawing more um, uh, attention is a great sign. Okay. Right. And so what that means is there's more in te- interest in doing more AI at the edge. There's a lot of pressure on software to start making models more um, uh, compact, yep. uh, processing more efficient, because there are hundreds of billions of microcontrollers out there. It's a great market if you can actually serve it. Right. But as that you, you see that go through, what you'll always see is there are specialized things that you can't do okay. in the form factors that you're looking at. And that's where specialized acceleration comes in. Okay. Right. So we we kind of are uh, a boat on that tide of tiny ML, because if you think about the spectrum from um, sensor edge which is at sensor, like a Cortex-M0 doing it, to the network edge, which is, for all practical purposes, a server outside the data center. Yeah. Right? There's a huge um, spectrum. Yeah. And what you always see is, okay, now I can take what I could do on a network edge processor, but I can do it in a form factor that makes it a lot more portable and a lot more cost-effective. That creates... uh, a potential for viral solutions if you have new applications. Yeah. Right. And you're seeing that in, uh, you know, especially in the emerging markets, you think about portable healthcare. Yep. Um, you can't necessarily connect to clouds in some of the remote places where medical transcription is required, or you went for a uh, an MRI, which is itself an expensive thing to go do, and you didn't get the right uh Answer right. Uh, or you, you, so so if you had a device that was portable, it was reasonably cost effective. That could tell you, okay, you're in the bounds of doing this right because I know what you're looking for. And then the deeper analysis can be done once it gets back to um, the main hospital. That saves a huge amount of cost, human and uh, device, because those things are expensive. Yeah. Right. And if you think about a lot of this is going to come from markets that are not as well connected 
make compute is not an easy resource or, or it's a very expensive resource. So this is truly about, AGI is truly about helping the broader community, if you will, rather than just sexy new apps. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I'm the tiny ML engineer listening to this, I'm probably mm -hmm. thinking, how on earth am I going to convert what I'm already working on into this spiking domain, which sounds <laughs> incredibly complicated and I don't know anything about it. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about your, can you reassure us that your software stack can, uh, is easy to use and it works and it can handle what we, we need it to do, right? Thank you for for the the, the, the platform to talk about. <laughs> sure. so, so one of the fundamental things that any AI uh, solution has to have is the simplicity of actually integrating models and building applications, right? Without that, the most elegant hardware is useless. Exactly. Right? And one of the things that BrainChip did recognize early, and in fact, some of the software acquisitions that we made initially was as tools, but then we said, no, we're actually selling the platform and hence the tools are built in, right? And so we, we have a, um, uh, a tool chain that plugs into um, any of the traditional frameworks Right, MetaTF is what it's called. It can plug into TensorFlow, Keras, and um, now, in fact, with this generation, we're doing Onyx and PyTorch, which seem to be the, the the four main. And we will continue to make it easily portable. Right. Um, so, so if you're a, a model geek that can that wants that level of flexibility, it'll plug into your framework, you can work with it, it'll generate what it needs to, it can, and in fact, our hardware understands how to convert those into events. So you can take today's models, compile them, you have to do them for any hardware platform anyway, and then, uh, you know, the quantization, et cetera, all done through the framework, um, they go into the, the model to be executed, right? Mm -hmm. But we're also working with development uh, players like, Edge Impulse. So yeah. Edge, uh, RangeUp was the first real IP platform that Edge Impulse supported. And we're closely working with them to make no-code, low-code um, development much, much easier. So our goal is to make the um, model development and application development much, much easier rather than you having to go back to the drawing board to understand a new paradigm of neural model. You certainly make it sound easy. I think that's the perfect place to finish. Thank you very much, Nanda. It's been great talking to you today. Thanks, Sally. Thanks for a very engaging chat. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to BrainChip's Nanda Nayampali for the insight into BrainChip's technology. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI and machine learning and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, Links to articles and topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspen Core Media. The host is Sally Ward-Foxton and their producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening.